there. Welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, a podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And today we're going to give our hot take review on the game we just finished playing, Lorenzo Il Magnifico. But before we do, I have some poll results to discuss. Chris is laughing at me. What, what's so funny about that, Chris? I, I just I just want to linger on that pronunciation thing. Can you, can you do that again for us, please? Lorenzo Il Magnifico. Oh, so, some listener in Italy, please help us. <laughs> Chris, why don't you pronounce Lorenzo Il Magnifico? Lorenzo Il Magnifico. Had the, that sound dramatic, at least, I, I hope. All right. <laughs> Before we jump into the description of Lorenzo Il Magnifico, I've got some poll results to cover. As I always do, I ask a poll every week on Twitter at BG underscore hot takes. And the poll I asked this week, if a game has a lot of endgame scoring, do you prefer if it has a score pad or a score tracker on the board? And in fact, Lorenzo has a a little bit of endgame scoring, but it just uses a score tracker. So yeah, we can tie that right into the conversation tonight. Anyway, here's how people answered on the poll. Score pad was 40.9%. Score tracker was 49.7%. I hate endgame scoring was 5.7%. And I calculated it in my head was 3.8%. And of course, about 15 people told me I didn't offer enough poll options on that one. Listen, everybody, Twitter only gives you four poll options to fill in. You can't add more than that. I'm sorry. I'll never hit all of your needs. Just go with it. Just answer. One person said, you know, when you ask these questions, and by the way, if you're a listener, I'm not making fun of you right now, but they said, you know, if you ask these questions, I always end up answering the first one of the first things that I agree with, but then I find a better one later on and it's confusing to me. So I said, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to stop asking for options? Just give two. And they said, no, just answer, ask them in the reverse order. Ask the less conventional (laughs) ones first. So now I'm going to try that next time and see what kind of complaints I get on that poll. Anyway, how did you guys, how would you guys answer this if you, if you did answer it? Well, first of all, Tim, let me just say that this poll, I like to think of as Il Magnifico. It was it was really just that good. Now, I, honestly, I, it makes for terrible radio, but I just don't really care that much. I guess I will say I have a very slight preference for a, a score tracker instead of a notepad. It's kind of it, it's funny because I never actually have this problem, but I always feel like whenever there's a score pad in a game, I'm like, oh crap, what am I going to do when I run out of score pad paper? And I have to go back and buy more. And I don't think I have a single game I own where I've used more than like you know, a a tenth of the score pad. So it's probably a false alarm, but you know, whatever it's, it's all psychological. Yeah. My favorite thing is like so many people, so many gamers on Twitter, they're like, okay, I I laminated my score pad as soon as I got it. I guarantee you they never use more than five. They never play that game more than five times. Chris, I can't believe you're coming in uh, indifferent on this hot button topic. The, the score pad score tracker issue in board games is fiery amongst the, uh, the board game population, but you're right. It, uh, it, it really doesn't matter. But if I was going to pick... What's wrong with you guys? Wars have started for less. <laughs> and because Tim doesn't know how to ask any polls, it's both. you got to have a score tracker and a score pad, obviously. <laughs> the score tracker for the game, so you know you can see how close it is going into the final game scoring. And then you got that like 20% to 30% of in-game scoring. you got to get the score pad out there so you can add it all up. You know what I do like? I like having the historical record of how the game went down. You can look back and you say, oh, this was that game where uh, Chris and Tim and I, look at this, I remember this year, this faction, and he scored this many points. You had that crazy thing going with these aliens, and then I had to do these things over here where I got the uh, all those rune nuggets and scored 30 in-game points. It was fantastic. So you can kind of replay the game from the, score pads, uh, from the score pad. So I do like that being able to go back and relive the play a little bit. So yeah, I like me some score pad. Do you actually keep the the old score pads, Adam? Like, is that a thing that you do? Like how many, yeah, how many I totally score do. pads? Like, do you keep like forever history of score pads? Like in Scrabble, you can see your top scores and stuff and going back, you're like, oh, this is when you had that bingo and you got a squint. I had this game where I played this word, a squint on the last play of the game on a triple word score. So go add that up. That's like 70 points on one word. It was amazing. I still have that score pad somewhere in the little travel scrabble case. Um, uh, I'm talking about you, Mike Noe. I beat you on the airplane on the way to the Middle East. I will forever remember that game. And it's because I keep the score pad. Wait, let me revise my answer because Adam redeemed this poll. Yes, absolutely. I, I love that. I do the same thing. I keep all those score sheets. And every time I open a board game that has a score sheet, I have this like you know flurry of paper that comes out. 
And as I'm reaching over to like pick them up off the ground, I'm reliving the moments of those great games. I actually once bought a board game. I mean, this is like way back, not a modern board game, but like bought a Scrabble or a Yahtzee or something like that at a yard sale. And there were still all these old score sheets from someone who's playing it like back in the seventies. And it was like this amazing little time capsule. So I totally take it back. I have a passionate feeling in favor of score pads in board games. Thank you, Adam. All we had to do was kindle the fire a little bit. And then now I'm rip roaring. I love this. (laughs) Oh man. Score pads. I love them. First of all, I can already tell that Marie Kondo hates you guys and you guys just keep all your crap around the house. When you listen, when you're done with a score sheet and you can't put any more scores on it, you recycle that nonsense immediately, get it out of your box. You got enough stuff to pack back in the box. Here's the one. The one exception is Pictionary. You got to keep old drawings from Pictionary. And in fact, I, you know what? I'm not going to go down this tangent. Score pads are terrible, bad for the environment, wasting paper, throwing stuff in landfills. This is what I can't believe you, all you guys are caring about is keeping old records of score pads and score trackers. There's so many important reasons to care about this. Number one, if you're doing it on a score pad, it means you got all this end game calculation to go versus on a score tracker. It's like, okay, we go through this one first. Oh, like look, look to move the marker around a little bit. You're not just like writing down on a score pad. And I love that. I love watching the marker moved up. Oh, he just jumped ahead. Oh, wait, she just moved ahead there. And that's so fun to watch that versus a score pad. You know, okay, you tell me how many points you tell me how many points you go down. And then finally, okay, let me read out the four scores. And for me, it's like, much less excitement of kind of seeing where the score tracker is moving around. That's one of the most fun parts about end game scoring when you have a score tracker is you just get to kind of watch the thing move around and see who jumps ahead. That's so fun. That's that's why I like uh, score trackers as well as the environmental reasons. And yeah, I have no worry about running out of score pads, although I'm almost out of uh, roll and write pad for Rajas of the Ganges, the Dice Charmers. I can't believe I've almost made it through that whole box um, just from using all those. But unrelated to score pads, I'm not going to get on that. Going back to Pictionary, by the way, you got to go check out an old box of Pictionary. Find some great pictures in there. Still have memories of playing Pictionary with some friends right after high school where the question, the word that you were supposed to draw was booth. And everybody draws a phone booth except for me. No, I draw Abraham Lincoln with a gun to his head. I lost that round because I was taking too long to draw it. But it's fun to go back and have that memory. A score pad, not so much. I'm not going to go look at another. I thought you said we we're going to go on any tangents. Yeah, Tim, seriously. I think you went on about 20 <laughs> different tangents. Something about the environment and how score pads are bad for the environment. Is that the point you're trying to make here? It's just some shaky ground here. It is. Dude, cut down trees just to write stuff on paper. Not sustainable. Score pads are destroying the world. Complete disregard for historical records. <laughs> it's, it's not all the plastic that's in the board games. You know, no one cares what we have to say. Let's see what some people on Twitter commented and what they had to say. Daniel Davalo said, for games with lots of discrete endgame conditions, score pad is usually more useful for checking for errors. Pretty hard to take back sees a score track if you don't remember each and every subscore. Also makes for a more dramatic reveal. Yeah. Great points. Great points. I don't, I don't deny any of those points. Not bad. Daniel Winter went a little different direction. This is the, from Board Game Feast channel. He said, I prefer a tracker to avoid having to do the math all at once. And moving on the tracker can add some great tension rather than jump just dumping the final numbers, which is what I said as well. I like the tension of just moving that up a little bit at a time. Eric Slauson, who's a, a game designer, by the way, said, uh, the only time I use the calculator on my phone is when I'm playing point salad board games. So yeah, some people neither don't go with either calculator. A couple of people said use an app. A couple of people said I do it in my head. But um, in any case, end game scoring sucks. We don't want a lot of it at the end of the game. Let's have most of it happening in the game. That's that's really why I brought this whole topic up. All right. How about a description of Lorenzo Il Magnifico? In Lorenzo Il Magnifico, players act as the head of a noble family in Florence during the Renaissance. The theme is razor thin here and doesn't aid with the rules description, so here's an unthemed version of how to play. Each player has four workers, or action selection pawns essentially, three of which are assigned a value based on a communal dice roll. The final worker comes with a value of zero and will require additional resources or discounts to use. Players take turns placing their workers in a variety of locations, the most interesting of which is a 4x3 grid of cards that will add to a player's tableau. Most other spaces generate resources or activate a specific row of a player's tableau. After all players' workers are expended, the cards are refreshed, workers are returned, and the process is repeated for a total of six rounds. Points are accrued in many ways, 
including the building up of a player's tableau itself, certain cards from that 4x3 grid, and the Pope track, which also generates penalties if ignored. Lorenzo Il Magnifico was designed by Flaminia Brasini, Virginio Gili, and Simone Luciani, with art by Clemens Franz, and is currently published by Cranio Creations, and was originally released in 2016. All right, welcome back. So we just finished the game of Lorenzo Il Magnifico. This is about my, I think, fourth or fifth play of it at this point. Uh, tonight we played on Yukata, Yukata. Nobody knows how, how to pronounce it, online platform. But we've played it in, in uh, I played it in person. Chris, you played it in person one time with me as well. So we got a few games. This was Adam's first play. He joined game night tonight and said, guys, I have no idea how to play. I didn't read the rule book. I didn't watch anything. And I was able to give him a teach in about five minutes while we got started. So why don't we start with you, Adam? What do you think of your first play of Lorenzo El Magnifico? What was your favorite or least favorite mechanism? It's got to be the comboing here. It's, I don't know. It's hard for me to pick a favorite mechanism. Because you have so many favorites. Like the production, <laughs> they're all so bland. They all just kind of blend together. Cat's out of the bag, isn't it? Wait, when you, hey, Adam, when you're talking about the comboing, do you mean like the engine building, like running your engine after you built it? That's right. That's right. So yeah, I got this card and look, now I can do this thing and this thing and this thing. And look, I bought this mm -hmm. other card that lets me activate this thing from this other card because I did all this stuff earlier in the game. But boom, points. So that is what I mean by comboing slash engine building slash tableau building. That's what happens here in... Uh, and Lorenzo, and there was aspects of that that, yes, I got some enjoyment from this game. You guys are just combative tonight. I can tell. I can tell already. And now I'm. I feel like I'm going to have to get defense on the defensive here. But I don't even need to get defensive because this game is amazing. And here's one of the things I really like about it. Aside from all the great tableau building choices, I'm going to start with my favorite piece. The thing that I think is genius about this. Right. It's a little bit of a mix of worker placement and tableau building. And you talked about this already. You know, there's two different production tracks where you can build up. I think one of them is called the harvest track and one's called the production track. But in order to activate them, it's not like they just run automatically, right? You got to build up these things, but there's a worker placement space that you have to activate and actually in order to actually trigger your production. And in a four player game, like we played tonight, one person gets to do it and just do it at their pip value. It's complicated. Go read the rule book. You'll understand what I'm talking about. Um, but if anyone else wants to do it after that, they have to take a big hit on which actions they can trigger in that. And I just think it's so such a fun, tense decision because it's like, do I go and buy another thing for my production chain this turn? But if I do, someone else might take that production action first. And this game is just full of tense decisions. Like every single turn I took in the game, I felt like it, this is this is a tough choice because if I do this now, someone else is going to take another thing I could want to do. Um, so I'll start with that. I think that triggering the production and the harvest chains are a really fun and interesting part of, of this game. So that's my favorite mechanism here. I'm going to mention a good and uh, not a bad, but a frustrating. The good is the action selection mechanism. I love this thing where you roll the dice. There's three different colors and then the pip value of each one amounts to the same thing as what was on the dice. And then you get to place that that worker out in the appropriate space but that each time we're taking the, the collective role and then working off of that. I think that's actually really clever. I think it's a lot of fun. I think it's really interesting. Um, on the downside, there's this dynamic that I know it's not exactly feeding the people, feeding corn to your people, to use a, a Sulkin analogy. But, well, actually, let me go back for a second, because there actually is one of those too. You have to feed the Pope, I guess. And so and that's one piece of it, but it feels to me like you're constantly running up against this feeding thing because everything you do requires a whole slew of resources. You got rock, you got servants, you've got stone, you've got wood, blah, 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 this and that. And every time, the number of times I went, oh man, I'm one short of this thing or that thing, so I can't do a move. I know that's not the same thing. As, it's that, that's resource management. That's not the same thing as feeding your troops. But it just felt like I was constantly doing that on top of the fact that I constantly had to make sure that at the end of every two rounds, the Pope was fed too. So I like the action selection mechanism. I don't love feeding the Pope. One thing that was interesting to me that, that came to my head as you're describing your thoughts about the game, Chris, was that action selection mechanism the three common dice and everybody gets to use their color to do the thing so the the dice are like your 
your base. And what you're going to do, you're going to add onto that with either your money or your, what you're going to build on top of that base. So if you're in a position, if you'd set yourself up and manage your resources in order to build on top of those dice the best throughout the previous rounds in the game, that's what allows you to take, that's what gets you the advantage over those over the other players. You can take a better action with the same dice if you've set yourself up to have the more resources to supplement that dice. So that's kind of a unique, interesting mechanism from this game that that I thought was pretty neat. Adam, I know you don't generally like dice action selection or uh, dice worker placement, but did this work better because it was a shared pool? So in other words, you couldn't accidentally be screwed like, was there some reason why you, you didn't? Because I never heard you complain about it all night. Now, we got a lot of high rolls as well. So it could have it been different if the, if the rolls had been worse in this game. So, right, yeah, this game is less about what the value of the dice actually are and having to mitigate that. It's more about what resources you've garnered before and what action yeah. you can do with the dice that are out there. Yeah. All right. Well, th- here's another thing that I really like. And it, it so what Chris was talking about, he doesn't like the feeding the Pope thing. I like a restrictive game that's challenging, that's tight. And, and this does it really well with that forcing you to have to pay attention to the Pope track. Now, the cool thing about that decision is that you don't have to pay attention to it, right? You can look at the negative benefits in each of the three rounds and say, do I care about that? Or can I, should I work around that? Should I ignore this one thing so that I don't have to worry about that and I can focus on other things? And I didn't do that tonight, and I should have because, like, the first round, I spent a lot of effort trying to catch up to that, you know, get to the third round in the in the Pope track, the church track, so that I wouldn't get a negative on my yellow, you know, action, the, the production action, right? Except I didn't buy any yellow cards. So I could have just ignored that and said, I'm going to ignore that the rest of the game. And I think that's a fun choice. I think it's pretty cool. I think it's it's hard to meet that thing, but you don't have to do it every turn. Or you could see, like, hey, in the in the final round, just ignore the green. Don't build up a green production engine, and you don't have to worry about the negative points on that. And then you can you can forget about it in the last round. I think it's a really fun decision to play around with. I'm excited to explore it more. I think that was a really fun part of this game. Hey Tim, not to call you out for overt hypocrisy, but aren't you the one who's always complaining about feeding the troops? No, I love it. I it's it's painful, but I love it. I love that part of a game most of the time. Can, when was a game that I actually said I didn't like? The, the part of feeding the people. I, I mean, it's like, it can be frustrating, it can be challenging. In fact, we're going to review a game next week that that's like based around feeding your people. And I'm so excited about it. I love it. I love that it makes you have to think about something. Like, Zulkin's a great example, right? Like, you could just say, hey, I'm just going to go do the thing I want to do. But you can't just do the thing you want to do because you have to worry about getting enough corn to make sure that your workers are fed. Or you can't just build up workers without finding a way to take care of them. I love that it puts out restriction. It makes you have to do something you don't want to do in order to make it more challenging to do the things you want to do. And that's one of the things I love about the the Euro board game. And I think when there's not a tight restriction that that kind of makes you have to do something you don't want to do, I think it takes some of the challenge. It takes some of the fun, the puzzle away from it. Yeah, I love it when I have to do things I don't want to do. Adam, am I crazy? Is this am I not am I for, am I hearing things here? I mean, am I remembering this wrong, or does he complain about? That very thing he's now saying he loves so much. You know, Tim flip-flops so many times, I can't keep track of what he said. I, I don't remember a game where I said that I hated it. But it's possible. There, there could be a game that it really rubbed me the wrong way. But it, not in this game. I think, it's, I think it's genius. I think it's brilliant. Fair enough. A mechanism that's missing for me or an aspect of the game that's missing for me is the, the player interaction. Tim, you said you like... I think this is your jam. This is one thing where I think we differ a little bit on games. You like where the interaction is, which decision do I want to do first? What action, what card do I want to take first? A kind of a race to get cards. And is that going to be the most important thing for me to do right now at the possible penalty of somebody taking that card from me before it comes around to me next turn? Yeah. So that's something that's not super exciting for me. And this game is a lot of that. So, it, you know, there's refreshes after, I guess, six actions, eight actions per player everything's going to refresh and you have a chance to get in. You can determine your player order. So there's a little bit of interaction with, aha, I'm going to go first next round. I have first crack at the cards that are coming out. It's the same mechanisms I've seen before and that it doesn't do much for me. 
But I know for you, Tim, that's something you really enjoy. Yeah, I hear you, Adam. I know that you don't like this. This is the exact amount of player interaction I wanted a game. Meaning that <laughs> that I don't want you cannot, you can almost not. Like you can. Like there was a turn at the end of the round where we said, hey, if we stop Steve from getting that one cross card, he's gonna lose the 20 points for his green production because he can't meet the he can't feed the Pope or pleasure the Pope or whatever. And so like there's a there's there's minor moments there where you can say, like, I know somebody wants this thing, so I'm gonna take it. But that's not what I want in a game. I don't want it in a Euro game at all. What I want is a game where every decision is challenging because if I don't do it, someone else can do it. They may not. They may, and hopefully they don't do it because they can block me, but they do it because there's the risk of it. And so it's a very tight and tough choice. And I love, I love the, the toughness of that choice. And when is it, you know, am I making the right choice by doing this first versus the other thing? I'm going to bring some counter examples and look at like barrage, how the interaction there is, is so much more dynamic where water is flowing down. You can see, oh, this guy's going to run his engine here. I can trap his water after he does, or I can put my dam in front of his infrastructure and kind of mitigate his actions that he's done. Look at brass Birmingham, where you're trying to avoid flipping other people's tiles in favor. Or maybe you need that extra coal. So you have that tile available, or there's some beers available. So the interaction there, soul, last days of a star, there's that interaction, the positive interaction where you're using other people's infrastructure and you can look, oh, he doesn't have enough energy to capitalize. So I can take his bonus action there. There's so much more dynamic interaction than just waiting to see if someone's going to take the card that you wanted to take to help you out. It's it's different. So it's different. And, and I totally hear you. But see, Barrage is a great example. What I love about Barrage is the tightness of like, hey, do I take the action where I can build another building so that my next production is stronger? Or do I take the production first before someone else does and then they get the stronger benefit for it? I like that part of Barrage. What I freaking hate about Barrage is when I build a dam and the infrastructure support it and then someone builds a dam directly above me. That's not good. Inter- that's not fun interaction for me, but it's fun interaction for you. So it's like it's a it's different. And it's completely changes what's fun for each of us. That's, that's just, that's, that's us, man. That's the reality of who we are. Okay. I I, want to say something here, but Matthew, before, before I do, I actually want to go back to Adam for a second and I want a clarification. Are you saying that you don't think there's enough interaction in this game or you don't like the nature of the interaction? Probably both. There's not enough interaction, and then the nature of it, it's like mm. the type of interaction that it is, is not super appealing. To Adam's me. saying it's not mean enough interaction. You can't intentionally hurt somebody. That's what uh, he's saying. That's what he's saying. No, it's I'm not sure. That's what he's saying. It's uninteresting interaction. I, so your mean to him is my like interesting choices barrage again. Going back to that, you put a dam down here and thing down here. Of course, I'm going to put a dam in front of you. That just eliminated like two of your actions that you just did. Now you're going to spend next couple of rounds playing catch up that's your mistake not that's fun. your mistake for, for building right there in the first place you know that's a bad spot you know that's just a waste spot to put an extraneous building out so you can get a dam from your player board out later on it's only a bad spot if you're a jerk off and, and you like wow. take that spot ahead of me that's <laughs> all right children all right children no i i want to split them i want to split the middle here and I, I do get what you're saying adam I don't find that particular type of interaction, the, oh man, do I draw this card before someone else does? I don't love that either. That's not my favorite type of interaction. I think Barrage is a lot more interesting, but I do think I found there to be a lot more interaction than you did. I I think that, like for me, I constantly felt like I was being stymied by something other, somebody else was doing. I don't know if it was intentional or not. It might very well not have been. But I had, I don't know, at least a half dozen times in this game when I had a strategy and I was getting ready to move forward on this thing or that thing or the other, and then someone would take that and I'd have to completely recalibrate my strategy, which can be frustrating or an entertaining puzzle, depending on how you look at it. So I do agree with you. That's not my favorite type of interaction. I like something that's a little bit more direct, but I did think that there was a pretty healthy dose of interaction in this game. Okay. Okay. So there is one more mechanism here that I want to talk about. And it kind of goes in hand with the type of interaction I like. And that is the interesting choices about which column you're pulling from, right? You you have three different colors to use and then and that's related to the dice. But when you buy in a column, you cannot buy in that column again that round. So you only have one choice in a column. But also, if you're the first one to buy in a column, the next person that buys there has to pay an extra three coins. And that can be huge. That can be very 
it basically can make it inaccessible or make them have to use two actions to get to it. And, and it's kind of the same thing. It's like a, a, a more intense version of worker placement. You're not just blocking what I wanted to take, but you're making everything in that row more expensive. And I think that's really fun too. I think it's another genius mechanism of this game. If you like worker placement, resource management style games, I think Lorenzo does some really, really cool and interesting things in a very streamlined way, in a way that I was able to teach Adam in like five minutes on an online platform where it's not particularly easy to teach. This is a this is a very streamlined and very very interesting euro game for me. So let's talk about the production and theme of Lorenzo Il Magnifico and there's not much theme here. A couple of Italian designers that worked on this and I think there's some famous history around Lorenzo the Magnificent. This is a real person. They probably loved creating a game about this history. A lot of famous Italian personalities in this game it means absolutely nothing to me. I don't care about um, you know, kind of Italian, um, you know, Regency back in whenever Leonardo da Vinci's time, um, you know, so it doesn't matter to me. I don't care. This is a mechanisms game for me first and a theme game. Not at all. Yeah, this game is a theme free zone and no disrespect to Italy, but holy cow, I can't imagine a game that's got a drier theme than this. It doesn't even have the excitement of, you know, trade in pre-industrial Europe. It's not even trade. I'm not even sure what it is. It's this crazy point salad where everything is so abstract that I am completely unable to extract any meaningful interaction between the mechanisms of the game, which are quite good. I mean, I actually like the mechanisms of this game a lot, but it suffers so badly from poor theming and really unfortunate art that it just, it takes me out of it. It takes me out of the game. And that it makes me so sad because so much of this game is great. The mechanisms, the mechanics, the mechanic mechanisms. <laughs> it's 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 unfortunate. Yeah, the to agree with you guys, the theme and the art are a hurdle. The box art has a just a funky looking dude on the front again, which is a immediate turnoff. You know, I do like the Renaissance art surrounding the dude. I think that's fun to look at, but after that it just goes further downhill from what it was and it's too bad there's so much you could put on there's some beautiful art from the renaissance period some uh, famous artists famous designers famous sculptures that you could just throw in here if you wanted to uh but none of it's here so i don't have much else to add about the uh the art or the theme listen clemens franz is a style that some people like it probably reminds you of classic heroes and there's something to you know appreciate about that but why why was he used so much why is he the only board game artist on euro style games for like 10 years and continues to be overutilized and it's just dull it's like fine if that's your style that's great but don't you want something that's different don't you want a little bit of a change don't you want some variety i've played so many games so many great mechanically great games in the last even three months that are just you know pushed back by the fact that i'm looking at the same exact people the same exact shapes the same exact trees the same exact buildings let's move on i mean clemens franz at least should try a different style like try something different even if you want to you know if you want to keep doing board game art try a different style I don't understand. Publishers, somebody help me understand why Clemens Franz still keeps getting hired for these games. This Lorenzo El Magnifico deserves to be in the top 100 games of all time, and it was for a while, and it's falling off. And there's so many Clemens Franz games in the top 100 that they're blending in, and you're losing these great games to bad production, to, to just mediocre art, to repetitive art. I, I played two games yesterday with Clemens Franz art on it. They're great games, but they had Clemens Franz art and they lowered. I'm sorry, Clemens Franz, if you're listening to this, I don't have anything against you personally. I think your art is an interesting style. It's just repetitive. We're, we're tired of seeing it. We don't want to see it anymore. That's all I have to say about that. There's nothing else to say about the production of this game other than it's Clemens Franz art and a theme that doesn't mean anything to me. So, yeah. Uh, you guys ready to move on? Do you have anything else to add to that? I want to proactively respond to the argument that I'm sure somebody is going to make, at least in their head when they listen to this. And that is, get over it with the theme and the art. Great mechanisms are great mechanisms and enjoy the game for that. And to that, I say, great acting is nothing if it's not in service of a story 
And nobody wants to see a movie where the actors are all sitting around in sweatpants. They want to see costumes and they want to see production and they want to see, hear a good story. Theme in a board game is the story that the mechanisms are in service of. I firmly believe in that. And even if it's relatively minimal theming, this one doesn't even have that minimal theming, it feels like to me. I mean, it's so abstract that I can't, like, I can't understand, like, what is the, I can't understand what the cross track is exactly. And why do wood and stone translate into points? I mean, it, they, the things don't even necessarily make sense. If you were building buildings out of stone and wood, I'd kind of get it. But we don't even have that. It's just they're purely, they could be abstract symbols. Same complaint that I had about Age of Galaxy. Things that were called like alien relics or this or that. I'm like, okay, well, it's purple triangles and green horseshoes and yellow diamonds. It's the same thing. I, it, but there, at least there was a story behind it. I could tell a story. Here, it's purple diamonds and green horseshoes, and I'm not even sure what the story is. Tim, I see you shaking your head. Chris, Age of Galaxy is loaded with theme, and those those green little things, those are relic, they're alien relics you've discovered, and they're worth points because it's, you know, maybe amazing technology or something. Don't don't talk about Age of Galaxy like that. That's not <laughs> accurate at all. This is not I a think, review on it. I I think you're missing my point there, Tim. My my point was that the production was pretty lame, it but wasn't. there was still a good story okay, and a good theme. Stop. No, Chris, you didn't appreciate the production. <laughs> it's different. It's different. <laughs> Lorenzo <laughs> suffers from what you're talking about. Age of Galaxy didn't. This isn't a review on Age of Galaxy. It does. All right. Final question. Would you request to play this game again? And I'm going to start with this one because I just feel like like it's one of these situations where I can just feel it. I can feel that I know what I'm going to hear from you guys and I don't want the podcast to end this way. So I'm going to lead it off and just say that I love this game. I don't care that the mechanisms of production suck. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a shame that they do. It's a shame that they're not more interesting. But it doesn't matter. This is a Castles of Burgundy for me. This is a, a game that is just genius. I love playing it regardless of what it looks like. Maybe someday we'll get the deluxe edition version of Lorenzo. That'd be cool. This game is fantastic. I'm, I'm, it, there's, there's very few games where I play it the first time. I read through the rules and I start playing it. And I'm just like, oh, that's so cool. Oh, wow, that's so cool. Oh, I love what that's doing there. This is one of those games for me. This is a, you know, like, listen, I didn't play this before we did our top 30 this year. I'll be shocked if this doesn't make my top 30 next year. This is an amazing game. I love it. It deserves all the acclaim it's ever gotten, regardless of all the the negatives on the theme and production. Perfect Euro-style game for me. I'll never ask to play this game, but I wouldn't reject it either. It's not an entirely unentertaining game. I mean, I the mechanisms are good. I enjoy that piece of it. But in the end, if I have a dozen different options, hell, I've got a half dozen options from this same group of designers that have a lot of theme and great mechanisms and are a whole lot of fun. Why would I pick this one? Yeah, I'm with you, Chris. I think I'm in the same boat. I don't think I would request to play this one again, but sure, I'd play it if it was around. Tim's going to bring it out, and I'd like to see the the real life, the ugly production in real life. Why not? I'd happily play this one with you, Tim, but again, it's not something I'm going to request. Yeah, fair enough. When you buy the game today from Cranio Creations, it comes with like all the expansions that it released. And there's a couple interesting things. I thought I'd just mention those really quickly and, and see if you guys, I haven't played with any of them, but I thought I'd see if, what you guys thought of them. One of them is that there are unique player powers, but it's it's kind of funny. Aside from having unique player powers, there's this bidding mechanism that you do at the start of the game. So you have, let's say that it's three of us playing. So you'd put three of these player powers out and then you put this little bidding track underneath. And the bidding track shows at the bottom a whole bunch of resources. That's going to be your starting resources. So you could place a, a, a like a little worker on the bottom of the track and if nobody else outbids you, you're going to get that player power, but you're also going to get all the resources at the bottom. But someone else can take the next step up on that track, which is a little bit less resources, and now they've outbid you. And so when it comes back around to you, you now have to move your worker to one of the other three characters or move higher up on that track. And so whoever ends up, stop, like when all three players have ended on one of the tracks, then that's when you stop. But you've given up however many resources you outbid on other people. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's pretty pretty clever. And I thought it was fascinating that they actually added these extra, extra like punch out boards just for the bidding part of the game. But it could significantly change how much you start with. I think that's kind of neat though, because it, it it's like, hey, if you're worried about balance in asymmetric powers, here's a way to fix it. The other thing is that there's this, this sideboard, this other module you can play with, this sideboard that has like 
four more card row, uh, you know, pieces in and they're generic. And um, what you're going to end up doing is have four more cards you can buy in a different tower that, you know, kind of follows the same restrictions as the others, but they're going to be a variety of different card colors. So that seems fun. It seems like it's going to add a lot of variety. Hey, you want a purple card, but the purple card's already been bought from. Now you can buy from this other row and maybe get a cool purple card from it. So it's just going to change it up a lot. There were a few other things. There's one where like, you know how there's the cost next to the dice where the higher dice, you get some benefits from them. One, three, five, and seven is how much dice pips. There are these things that rotate every round where the the dice pips change and the, the benefits change. So like, you know, on one round, the, the dice benefits will be one, three, five, and seven. The next round, it might be five, six, eight, and 10. And so it's going to change the the value of each of those over the course of the round. I don't know if I'd like that one as much. It could be interesting to play around with. Anyway, there seems like there's a lot of variety in this in this box. This is a game I feel like I'm going to be asking to play for a long time. And I think the expansions are just going to add to that. I'm going to hold out for the space expansion. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that will wrap up our conversation on Lorenzo Il Magnifico. Let's uh, talk about some Lorenzo themed cocktails and some games that we've had on our table right after this. All right, welcome back, Chris. What do we have for cocktails tonight? You surpri- you're surprising me tonight. You didn't give me a chance to try it, so I'm excited to hear what you have to say. I know I completely forgot, and I'm sorry you you had to miss out. But before I get into tonight's drinks, a quick programming note: I'm gonna cut the detailed recipe and preparation notes from now on. Because after all, I mean, we're here for the games, right? And I think probably everybody listening to this is internet savvy enough that they can probably Google any recipe that I'm offering anyway. So let's focus on the fun stuff. Lorenzo El Magnifico is a game that comes with a really healthy serving of Catholicism. And I was raised Catholic, so that piece felt pretty familiar to me. And another concept that I took with me from my youth was that wine was a pretty significant part of Catholic life. I mean, most people know about the role of wine in religious ceremonies in in various faiths. But what folks may be a little less familiar with is this long tradition of Catholic monks making great booze. And I'm not just talking about wine. I'm talking about all kinds of stuff. So I'm going to offer a few options today, all of which draw on this awesome tradition. The first drink that I'm going to tell you about is the last word. This is one of my all-time favorite cocktails. It's such a go-to. It's this mixture of lime juice, gin, maraschino liqueur, and chartreuse. It's so tasty, it's tart, it's a little sweet, and it is really deceptively boozy. It's a pre-prohibition classic, so it has a really long history, but even more interesting than the history of the drink is the story of its star ingredient, green chartreuse. The Carthusian monks have been making this delicious spirit for over 200 years in France, and to this day, that's the only place that it's made, and the monks are the only ones who have the recipe. Chartreuse is this delicious herbal flavor that was originally thought to have medicinal properties, which actually seems to be a pretty common backstory with a lot of old-timey alcohol. But ultimately, folks liked the flavor enough that they eventually started drinking it for fun, and a legend was born. Personally, I just love thinking that every time I'm drinking a last word, I'm tasting the work of monks half a world away. But if you don't want the hassle and the expense of getting an exotic ingredient like chartreuse, You can capture some of that same magic by picking up a good Trappist ale. Like Chartreuse, this amazing ale is made only by Trappist monks. To be clear, there are plenty of ales made in this style, and they actually had quite a run a few years back as the It beer for hipsters. Maybe still are, because I'm not a hipster, so I don't know. But not all such beers are authentically Trappist. In fact, there are only 12, count them, 12 certified Trappist breweries in the world, and they have to be made by monks. Sadly, the only one that's in the United States is Spencer Brewery in Massachusetts. It just announced the decision to close its doors, which to me is incredibly sad. But anyway, that aside, beer in these styles that are not made by monks are called Abbey Ales and are available pretty easily. But the real deal is also out there and pretty accessible for a few extra bucks if you want it. Finally, if you're day gaming and want something to splash in your coffee that's really tasty, try a little bit of Frangelico. It isn't made by monks, and it's probably more legend than fact, but this hazelnut liqueur from Italy was supposedly created by monks way back in the day. The eponymous Fra Angelico, or Brother Angelico, in fact, is what the drink is named after. In fact, the bottle is even in the shape of a friar, so how cool is that? 
So in Lorenzo, you may be trying to please the Pope, but whatever your religious persuasion, you can count on the Catholic distilling and brewing tradition to please your palate. Christy's all sound amazing. I love a good Trappist ale or Abbey ale, but I want to try the other ones as well. And also, just so you know, you are definitely a hipster. So just go with it. <laughs> Thanks, man. All right, well, let's jump into some games that we've been playing this week. I'll start. I'll start. So I'm going to talk about a game that I'm interested to chat with Adam a little bit about tonight because he's played it and uh, didn't seem to enjoy it too much. So I want to talk a little bit about that. This is called Fantastic Factories. This was designed by Joseph J. Chen and Justin Faulkner and was published by Metafactory Games. This is a fairly light to midweight little engine building game. Uh, it's very simple. I can tell you the rules in like two minutes. Basically what happens is there are two row, rows of cards out in the middle of the table. One of them is factories that you can pick up, uh, factory cards you can add to your hand. The other is like workers that you can hire. And then right above each of those workers is a little symbol. It represents one of the four symbols that are on the factory cards. At the start of the game, everyone starts with five cards in their hand, which are going to be a bunch of different factory cards, and they're going to have some of these symbols. So at the start of each round, each person is going to take turns either picking up one of the factory cards, just adding a free card to their hand from this tableau, or uh, discarding one of the cards that matches the symbol above the worker and taking that one-time action, which might get you some more dice or whatever. But bottom line is that basically what this game is, you're trying to build up a bunch of factories and producing goods out of them. And each of these factory cards that you buy, you'll put them in your tableau when you can spend the resources that are energy and ore. And then you would discard a card that has the same symbol on it. You'd build this factory in your engine. And then usually it has some dice spots on it. So everybody has four dice. After you do that first drafting round, then everybody rolls their four dice. They place them out on the factories. You've got some starting abilities you can do with dice, but also you can add more factories. And the factories will do different things. Let's say that it says, hey, put uh, two equal pip dice on this on this factory, and then you can get a uh, manufactured good and like an ore. Or it might say, put three different dice, one pip apart. So you'd have to put a two, three, and a four there, and you'll get two energy plus two, two manufactured goods. So there's different requirements for these factories to trigger to get you the goods. If you can't trigger any of those, you can use your dice to either get more ore, more more energy, or more cards from your starting factory. And it's just this little engine builder where you're adding more cards to your tableau. Um, the game ends when somebody has 10 new factories in their tableau or if they've produced 12 manufactured goods. But each of the factories have some points on them as well. So then you just add up all the points. Really simple game. That's all you need to know how to play it. So I had a chance to play this a couple times solo first. And it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. It plays quick. You can knock it out in about 20 minutes. Fun little decisions to make. The Automa on it is really interesting where I, I, I think I, I, it's been a couple weeks since I played it, but I think what it is is you basically roll one die of each color. And then if it manages to be more than the number of factories they've built, then they get to trigger something, they get some points, but they're going to continue to add those factories. So more and more of the course of the game, they're going to trigger. Runs really easily though, and it's fun. I remember the first time I played it, I barely beat it on like medium mode. So I moved it to hard mode and I'm playing. And I was like, oh, I'm doing so awesome here. And then I got to the end game scoring and the Automa beat me because they, even though I produced a bunch of goods, they had had a bunch of higher point factories in their city. So the solo mode was great on this and I love it. And I, I think this is going to be one of those like one deck dungeon, simple little like quick, you know, just I can play in 20 minute puzzle games for me to play solo. But I got a chance to play this multiplayer this weekend. And one of the things I was worried about when I learned it solo was how interactive is this going to be? And this is not like Lorenzo level interactive. It's like, is there any interaction at all? Does what my opponents do have any impact on what I'm doing? And the answer is absolutely not. So I played this two player and there's absolutely nothing that happens that my opponents do that impact what I'm doing. Other than they can draft a card out of the middle of the, the row. Most of the time, they're not going to make a decision based on what you want to do. So it's almost not impactful at all. But the reality is it was still fun that when you're taking your turn, everybody kind of does, does their little factory actions, their dice placement actions at the same turn. At the same time, it takes like a minute. It's like so quick. The rounds are super quick. The decisions are fun. This is a fun activity to do with some somebody else in the room, but it is not an interactive game at all. So I think this is a great solo game. I think it's a, I think it's a fun, short activity to do with other players but it's not really a game where you're competing or interacting in any significant way. You're just doing your own thing. And if you 
do it better than somebody else faster, um, then you're going to win the game. So from that perspective, I don't think you're going to get a lot of interaction here. I do understand that the expansion that came out is supposed to add some more interaction. I don't know anything at all about it, so I'm not going to speak to that. I will say, though, that I really like the game still for both situations. I think there are times when you just want some time to sit down and just do a little puzzle with somebody else in the room. You're, you're, you're being social. You're not being mean. You don't have to think hard about this. Just sit down and play this thing. I think there's an, uh, there's a spot for it. And because it's so short, it's okay that you're not getting a big epic event out of it. So this game is actually going to stay in my collection. And I have a very tight collection. So I just I want to you know reinforce, I really like this game. I think it's great, but it's a very specific niche. And it's not going to be a fit if you really are looking for something where you're interacting with other people. But Adam, you had a chance to play Fantastic Factories. What were your thoughts on it? Yeah, you can probably deduce my thoughts. I played it only the one time, and this was pre-COVID, so I don't know how long ago that was, three and a half years ago, something like that. And, you know, I thought it was okay. There was roll some dice and then grab some chits, do some things, build up a little engine. Yeah. And like you said, Tim, there was just no interaction. I was like, I, I went to this meetup to play a game and interact with people and, like, have some have some fun. And everybody just ended up doing their their own kind of thing after rolling dice and somebody would say, Oh, look at this crazy card that I got. Or like, Oh, you drafted the card that I wanted to get. And, and then the game was over after 20, 30 minutes. And that was it. So I didn't hate it. I thought the art was fun. It was cute. There's some humor in the cards and the art is pretty fun. And the dice are pretty. So if rolling dice is your jam and putting them and slotting them in, figuring out that puzzle is what you're looking for. Then look at fantastic factories just in terms of appearance this looks family weight is it actually family weight or it is just does it just look that way yeah it's probably family weight maybe slightly medium weight but for sure i think like your son could get in and play it my daughter could get in and play it it's it's pretty straightforward to get into but but for me still again like even as a family weight it's it's interesting decisions for what you're doing on your tableau it's not like I'm just going to do this thing and randomly get what happens to me. I still had to make a choice every time. What card do I pick out? What card do I discard to play this other card? You know, like there are interesting decisions here, but they're not complicated decisions. So I think for a what is generally a family weight game, it's a pretty interesting game. I think it does it well. Yeah. And, and speaking to what you were saying, Adam, like I sat down, I was like, hey, Jen, you know, my wife's traveling and Jen's staying with us right now. So I was like, Jen, you know, I'm going to, I want to teach you a game. So I, I brought out Res Arcana and Fantastic Factories. I said, which one of these do you want me to teach you? And she said, neither, but teach me the, the easiest of the two. And so I picked uh, Fantastic Factories. I thought she'd get into it a little bit more. And I have to say that I I, I didn't feel like it was a fun experience to, for her to be playing, right? Like I taught it to her and we were doing our own thing. And so we got done with that game and I was like, okay, listen, you know, I know that didn't seem really exciting. Do you want to try it one more time just to make sure you got the hang of it? And she's like, sure, I'll play it again with you because it's like 20 minutes, right? It's super easy. So we finished playing it again and it was still kind of the same. It's kind of like, well, we just did this activity for a little bit and I had fun doing my activity, but we weren't really doing anything together, right? We were just doing this thing. But at the end, she said, you know, I think Danielle's going to like this and I'd be happy to play with you guys again. So it was kind of one of those things. It's like, I think this is going to be a great game for me and my wife when it's like we're exhausted. It's like a Thursday night. We don't want to sit down and watch some TV. We just want to like kill 20 minutes before we're ready to get into bed and read or something. And, uh, and this is a great game to do that. It's not, com- it's not combative at all. It's just a fun little activity you can do with somebody. I think it's great for that. And I don't have many games that, that do that. And I don't want many games that do that. But I think having one game that does that, this is a pretty good, a pretty good hit on it. I'm going to go off on a quick tangent here and mention that this game suffers from something that a lot of games do these days. And I was talking to you guys about it earlier tonight. And that is pointless subtitles. The actual name of the game appears to be Fantastic Factories Build, Train, Manufacture. Did they need to have the Build, Train, Manufacture in there? Does that actually add anything or explain something that I didn't know otherwise? I mean, would I have been confused and thought, well, oh, this is a training game. I like that, so I better so I better get it. Another example that we talked about uh, it was a week or two ago, Caverna, the Cave Farmers. Did you need to have the cave farmers in there or did you need to have Caverna in there? You definitely didn't need to have both. And I don't understand that. <laughs> Chris. Or okay. e- Eclipse, Second Dawn for the Galaxy. Why couldn't it just be 
Eclipse. Well, the first one was, dude, but that was the second edition of it. So they were trying to make it a more interesting second edition. But going back to Fantastic Factories, that is not a subtitle. It's just something that they printed on the box. If you look at the, the, the name of the game on Board Game Geek, that is not the subtitle at all. So the definition of a subtitle is something that's printed on the box underneath the title. <laughs> that's, no, it's not part of the name. It's just some words that somebody put on there to, to sell you. They shouldn't have put it directly on the title. They should have put it lower on the box. So you kind of knew what you were doing there. It's not a subtitle. Just FYI. I don't want poor Joseph Z. Chen to be picked on for a, a choice that he didn't make because it's just a bad it's it's just a bad UI. It's a bad graphic design decision. It's not. A and I am not picking on anybody. I am saying nothing about the game itself. <laughs> it might be a wonderful game. I haven't played it. I just I don't know. I want to scream every time I see another pointless subtitle in a board game name because there's so many of them. I just don't get it. Hey, can I tell you a funny example that that reminded me of though? There was this movie called The Edge of Tomorrow. I don't know if you guys saw this. This was Tom Cruise and um. Oh, what's her name? Emily Blunt was in it, right? I actually really like it. It's a fun little sci-fi movie. And um, and it didn't do well in the box office. Really cool movie, really interesting stuff going on, but it didn't do well. But it had a subtitle on the on the box itself. So it was Edge of Tomorrow. And then it was like the advertising they did, and it was like live, die, repeat, right? And when they started putting those posters up, it got people more excited. So then they re-released it like a year later or six months later. And they changed the name to Live, Die, Repeat. And it actually did much better with that that title instead of the original title, which I think is nonsense because I think Edge of Tomorrow is a very cool name. I think it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. Moving on. Adam, what have you been playing this week? What's, what's, on, what's been on your table? All right. I'm going to talk about a game that I mentioned on previous podcasts, but I actually got a chance to sit down and play this one. This is Cafe. Designers listed here are Costa and Rola. Artist is uh, Marina Costa and publisher is Pythagoras. I had a blast playing this game. I took it on the road with me. I played it three-handed solo. And what you're doing is you're drafting these cards, these big sort of, imagine the planning pads from Smartphone Inc. It's a two by three tarot size, maybe slightly larger than tarot size card with these different symbols on it. All of these symbols represent different actions. And what you have to do is plan out the way these actions are going to resolve. First thing that's going to happen is for every coffee cup that you have on these planning pads, that's how many actions you get. So yeah, you want to get these coffee cups so you can have more actions. But then you need to harvest these different varieties of coffee represented here by four different colors. There's four different types of coffee, four different beans. Then next you have to roast those coffees. That's one of the actions that's going to happen too. Then you have to grind those coffees. Then you have to blend them. Then you have to ship them off to the location where they're going to get consumed. First person gets to look at three cards. Boom, they pick one. You get a choice of three each time. And the ones that don't get drawn, those get discarded. So there's a set number of cards in the deck that you're going to see. So you take that. You add it to your first card. You have to cover up at least two of the spaces on your previous card, but no more than four. So you're like already like, oh, no, I have to give up some of these spots that I work so hard to get. Oh, this is so frustrating. And then it's like it becomes like a tile placement game. If you have two of these harvest actions together, they activate both with one action. If you have five of them together, they activate all with one action. So you're trying to organize these in such a way that you're taking efficient actions. Two roasts together, boom, you get two roasts in one action. So you're considering that as you're going through placing these tiles every round. So it's a logistical puzzle, a tricky puzzle, a little bit of a spatial puzzle. I absolutely loved this game. It was tight. It was hard for me. It was thinky. Maybe trying to do it with three people was too much work for me. I should have just tried it with one person. There is a solo mode that I should have just done that. But I think this game is fantastic. Have you guys looked at it? Any interest in trying this one? What do you guys think of the mechanism? Does it make any sense the way I describe it? Kind of. I'm, I'm curious. Does it, is there an interaction, though? Is it any different than Fantastic Factories as far as like what you're doing is interacting with other people? Because I, it sounded to me like maybe not so much, but maybe I'm missing something. There is a, an auctioning variant here where each person is sort of the, the, a rotating grand roaster. And you start out with the, if there's three players, you put four cards out there and then you're going to auction off, you're going to bid to get that primo card. So you have to kind of decide how many resources you want to bid to get the preferred card that'll 
help out your engine or hurt somebody else's engine by them not being able to get it. So that's the only bit of interaction here is there's a variant with an auction. Do you, so do you think that you would like playing this with multiple players more than you like Fantastic Factories? So, you know, I, it's tough to say. Okay. I had the one play of Fantastic Factories three and a half years ago. I've had the one play of this three-handed solo. It'd be fun to get this one out and uh, match wits with Sarah on it and see how it goes. Yeah, sure. Different puzzles for different people. I think I enjoy the spatial puzzle of trying to organize these cards and link up multiple icons to link together the actions and get the most production out of taking a single action on the card. That's a fun puzzle to me. Interesting. Anyway, so Board Game Geek has this uh, listed as a 2.0 weight on it, which is pretty you know reasonably light. So it was interesting. You said it was a challenging puzzle. It was thinky, so probably easy rule set, but but tough decisions, and that's great. Like that's that's potentially a lot of fun and that's exactly right i think the the puzzle was way harder than i expected i did see that 2.0 weight easy game to learn so that's all i can think the rules overhead super duper light but then the puzzle is tough yeah when you first talked about this one several episodes back adam i think you compared it in part to the the cell phone mechanism on smartphone inc and that sounded pretty appealing to me that on top of the fact that the art in this, the art deco style of the art is really pretty enchanting, I thought. So I would love to give this one a try. It's worth a try uh, at the very least. Mm-hmm. Before I jump in and talk about what's on my table this week or my virtual table to uh, throw a little teaser in there, I want to go back to my fetching about the board game names. Because I actually, while we were talking, I Googled really dumb board game names. And there's a great article on BGG about the best and worst names in board games. And one of the categories they use is the dreaded colon. And they make exa- the author makes exactly the same point that I did. A few of the examples they gave were Tainted Grail, The Fall of Avalon, Cerebria, The Inside World, and Caverna, The Cave Farmers. Oh, as well as through the ages, a story of civilization, which I'm actually going to be talking about here in a minute. And in one particularly bit of high comedy, they talk about the two-player variant of, or the the two-player expansion of Caverna called Cave versus Cave. And they say, quote, if I'm ever dumb enough to get sucked into a six-player game of Caverna, I'm going to dub it Caverna, Cave versus Cave versus Cave versus Cave versus Cave versus Cave versus Cave. That's all I'm going to say about that. So on my table this week, I've been rekindling my love of the game through the ages, colon, a story of civilization. And this is a game that Adam and I had been playing a while back, and I'm not sure why, but we just sort of fell out of playing it. And I got back into it and have been loving that game again. It's one that I just have such a hard time putting together a coherent strategy, but I so love playing that game. But what it made me really think about was app implementations of board games and just what a hit and miss kind of a situation that is. Because Through the Ages is a game where it was nearly unplayable, I thought, even on BGA, because there's so many variations of what you could do. And it's a heavy rule set. It's challenging to learn and it's challenging to understand the second order of effects of once I do this, then I can do this, and then I can do that. And you're taking potentially, I don't know, seven, eight, nine turns over the, or seven seven, eight, or nine actions over the course of a turn. So you're doing a lot of stuff, each of which affects the thing that comes after it. And so having this app that's so elegant, it has this back and forward button, the undo and a redo, where you can swipe things around and then swipe them back, and you're able to really kind of see what the impacts of your moves are. It's such a wonderful experience for a game that if I was playing it on BGA, I would have such an incredibly difficult time playing that game. Now, I'm going to compare that to Wingspan, the app, which I just bought recently. And part of the reason I did was because I've been having such a good time playing through the ages, and I love the way the app looks. And then I saw a little video of the Wingspan app, and it's it's really gorgeous. It's beautiful. It has little bird noises, and it has the birds moving around on the cards, and I love the way it looks. But it's such a clunky interface when you actually try to play it. You're clicking here and there and all over the place just to try to figure out what birds are in what location. And you have to constantly be moving around the screens and then you can't see what was on the previous screen. So you're going back and forth in a way that I just found so unpleasant compared to 
playing the BGA version, which was simplified and much easier to play. And that got me to thinking about all the different apps that I play on. And Star Realms is a great app. I really enjoy it. And one of the things that I like about it is the fact that it actually helps kind of sharpen your ability to play the game because I play with my son and we have to remember the order that we play the cards in because if you draw a card or if you if you play a card, you can't then scrap it, for example. So playing it on the app really does help you hone your sense of timing in terms of when you take this action versus that action. But my complaint about it is that there's no undo button. So I always found that to be quite frustrating compared to the newer upgraded app or the new app, I guess it's not upgraded because they just put it out, of Hero Realms, which does so many of the same things that Star Realms does, but it also gives you an undo and a redo button that lets you go back as far as the last time that you made some kind of a, a move that would have had an impact on the game. So if you draw a card or something like that. So my point of all this is just that if you're going to play games on an app, you really have to do your homework and you really have to kind of see how the implementation works because it's not just as simple as taking a board game and the mechanisms of that board game and porting them over into a virtual space. You can have apps that really, really knock the game out of the park and make it even more fun, I think, than playing it live might be. I think Through the Ages is a great example of that. And to some degree, Star Realms and Hero Realms apps are great examples of that. There are some that are better off being played on BGA. I love playing Wingspan on BGA, for example. And there are others that you're just, you're really not going to get the experience of playing the game without having, uh, without having the board in front of you. And so don't even bother with an app. So it's just an interesting observation, I think, to me at least, on the state of apps out there, because there's so many of them available. And they, there's such a wild swing in terms of the quality and in terms of the presentation and frankly, their, their playability. Yeah, Chris, that's interesting. I, I noticed uh, we had a chat a little bit this week about how Gaia Project is just about to come out to an app if it's not already out there. And it's a game that we love to play on Board Game Arena. But I had a chance to play the Terra Mystica app, which is Terra Mystica is kind of the precursor to Gaia Project. And the reason I didn't play it very much after one or two plays was that it's kind of the same. It's like you get the the main map, but if you want to look at your, you know, the tracks, then you've got to click on a different screen and that zooms up. If you want to look at your player board, you got to click on a different screen and that zooms up. And it's just so annoying to not have all that information visibly available to you in one spot. And they probably can't do that, right? You probably just can't fit all that stuff on a on one screen, but it's just not fun to play it that way. And I'm worried about that with the Gaia Project app as well. So it's interesting you mentioned that about Wingspan as well. I did want to call out two things that you said though, Chris. One is that you mentioned that Through the Ages was more fun playing on an app, but that makes sense because you probably couldn't be less fun. Um, so that's probably perfectly uh, <laughs> a perfect example. Which one's higher on the BGA Top 100, Lorenzo El Magnifico or Through the Ages? I'm not sure. What's what's the answer to that? Yeah, but... Yeah, sorry, man. I, I hate, I hate, well, to, bust out, um, yeah, I hate to bust out quanti quantitative <laughs> data on you there, but, you know, it's... Check the scoreboard? Sorry to bring actual facts into the conversation. No, Chris, you make a great point about uh, some of these apps. I have some games that I absolutely love, and I've tried the app implementation. It's just such a bummer when it's not presented in a way that makes it conducive and fun. It's a little clunky. You're just, uh, it's so disappointing. When you know you put it in the hands of a good programmer or somebody who knows like what they're doing, how to lay out the user interface and make things accessible, it could be stellar. So just a little bit more development with some of these apps in the games would just just be cruising right along, so much more elegant. And they've going back to through the ages, what a masterpiece of an app. And I'm having such a ball playing this with you. I see we got the original card set go in this game which is like heaven for me i've played that so many times i recognize all the combinations i feel like you don't have a chance in this one chris uh whereas with those new that expansion card set adds a nice twist it refreshes the whole game it makes things confusing for me i'm not sure how everything's going to work well together fun going back and forth you can also blend them in the app if you want to have a combination of both I can't say enough about Through the Ages app. I'm glad you brought it up, Chris. You made a great point about apps. All right, cool. Well, I think that will wrap up this episode of Board Game Hot Takes. One last final fun note is that we did get a really nice review this week on Apple Podcasts. This was by BWIT87. The headline was Best Board Game Podcast. Give us five stars. 
This is the best podcast for board gaming, bar none. They are honest and straight shooters while being funny and chill. I'm easily annoyed at podcasts, but this one has never annoyed me and has always been enjoyable in the dozen or so shows I've listened to. While that is amazing to be called the best board game podcast of all time, I think that's true, but it's great to hear other people think it as well. Also, just keep listening. We'll we'll figure out a way to annoy you. Don't I was worry. gonna say you must not be listening to me very much because I <laughs> annoy myself when I'm listening. We we annoy each other. How can we possibly not be annoying <laughs> everybody else? That's right. Well, anyway, thank you so much. That was really nice of you. Uh, we love hearing these nice reviews. So if you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Or if there's any other platform that you listen to shows and you can rate and review us, do that as well. It helps other people find the show. It gives us some motivation to keep going. We're not getting paid to do this. We're doing it for your enjoyment. We're doing it for our enjoyment. But some high ratings, that also gives us some enjoyment as well. So keep it up. Until next week, take care, everybody. Good night, all. Bye-bye. Bye.